Hello and welcome back to the Back Pain and Injury Podcast. We are so excited to bring Dr. Cloda Dugdale onto the show. She's a consultant in sports and exercise medicine, currently working at the Spire Hospital in Cambridge, and is talking to us about relative energy deficiency in sport, or commonly known as RED-S. Cloda has a wealth of experience managing this tricky condition that is still relatively unknown in many circles, and we're doing our best to help raise awareness. Initially, this was thought of as mostly affecting only females. It is now known to affect a wide variety of people across all levels of athletic participation, from weekend warriors to Olympic-level professionals. So on this podcast, expect to learn what exactly is Red S, why the name was changed from Female Athlete Triad, is not having a period as an athlete ever normal, and why sports with weight categories can be at more risk. Overall, it's a fascinating episode and a must-listen for any athlete or anyone working in sport, might that be as a therapist, a coach, or any medical professional. As a reminder, if you are in pain and looking for someone to help, head over to our website, thebackpainpodcast.com, where you can use our directory and find someone local to you who's been tried and tested by us to help with your pain or injury. We know this way you should get the best care and therefore the best result possible. Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So, if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Back Pain and Injury Podcast. Delighted on this episode to introduce, introduce Cloda Dugdale. Dr. Cloda Dugdale, who's going to talk about all things Red S. So welcome to the podcast, Cloda. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me here. Brilliant. So I'd love to, to hear from you a brief introduction about you know, what you do, where you come from, whereabouts do you work? Okay, well, I'm a consultant um, physician specialising in sport and exercise medicine. I've had a sort of wide and varied career. At the minute, I do predominantly private work. Um, I did a lot of my training as a civilian in the military. Um, I have also been a GP and I've also been an anaesthetist and I've also been an academic. And I do at the minute also have a role within um, elite sport. I don't quite know how you have time to do all of that. So <laughs> well done. Um, <laughs> that's incredible. Um, so yeah, busy. So obviously today we're talking about Red S or Reds, as we uh, kind of said earlier, that some people refer to it as. So what is Red S? Just jump straight into it. Well, Red S, if we if we look at what the letters stand for, um, Red S stands for Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. Now, I think that the first three letters are absolutely great and describe very well um, what Red S is, so Relative Energy Deficiency, in that people who exercise are not taking in as much energy as they need. I think part of the problem with it is that the last letter, and this is just a personal view, in that sport actually sort of excludes a lot of people from thinking that that they might have it. A lot of healthcare physicians thinking that somebody might have it. 
because I think a lot of people think that this refers to people who who um, are elite athletes or a very high level athlete. And therefore, I think we're missing out a whole cohort of people such as um, recreational athletes, people that run two or three times a week um, who wouldn't necessarily consider themselves as as at a high level of sport and also a huge cohort of people like the military. So having having worked for probably 12, uh, 10 to 12 years within the military, but as a civilian, you, you, you see that military train they don't consider themselves as doing sport unless they physically go and do a sport, but they have uh, an enormous training load. So a significant number of them will be at risk, but they won't consider themselves at risk. So I think we need to um, it's sort of when we're getting across to the general population um, and to sort of doctors, healthcare professionals that deal with it, that this is, this is not a syndrome that just deals with elite sport. Um, so it is a mismatch of energy intake and energy expended um, in the uh, sort of athletic population, I think, if we want to say. And what we need to look at and what we need to talk about is energy availability. So how much energy the body has after it has used up all the energy it needs to on exercise, how much it has got left for performing the normal physiological, that is our normal um, bodily functions such as growing, um, reproductive health, cardiovascular health, bone health. And there's about sort of 10 things um, that we consider. So it's a low energy availability state. I think that's the, um, the short way to put it. And was this, am I right in thinking that this used to be called something different? Did we used to refer to it as a kind of female athlete triad? Is that the, the old term or is that kind of the umbrella or under the same umbrella? Well, female athlete triad was de defined and reported as a, a, a sort of syndrome, and that was in 1993. Now, what that used to be was a triad, meaning three sort of three bits um, of disordered eating or low energy availability, because they they assumed that that, that came from disordered eating. Um, suboptimal bone health. So you would see um, sort of people with slightly thinner bones than maybe they used to if you did, you know, sort of the bone scans and whatever. The bones weren't just quite as robust and made them prone to, you know, fractures, things like that. And then um, disordered periods in girls in that um, they either had a decreased frequency of periods or they had no periods um, at all. So this was 1993. And this opened everybody's eyes to the fact that actually there was a real syndrome going on here for people that had um, didn't were not taking in enough food for the amount of energy they were expending. So that was good in that it raised awareness of um, this condition. But sort of I think there's several problems with it. And they're all in the name. The clue's all in the name female. So therefore, we were excluding any any males from having um you know, from really considering that, that they could have disordered eating and a mismatch of energy intake and output. So we were only looking at females. Um, disordered eating doesn't always correlate with low energy availability um, because somebody may have a normal eating pattern but still have low energy um, availability. Um, they may have disordered eating, but if they don't exercise so much, they may not have low energy um, availability. And also, if we look at the third part of this little triad, the disordered <coughs> periods um, part of it, a lot of girls, especially sort of, you know, older teenagers, 20 year old girls will be on the pill, the oral contraceptive pill. And that will mask the fact that actually their reproductive health is, um, is less than it should be. 
Also, being a triad, people were only really looking at bone health, looking at reproductive health. And now we know so much more that, um, that this low energy availability causes. So in 2014, um, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee and other workers, redefined then this as relative energy deficiency in sport. And I think that's where the sort of sport bit came of, because the IOC were very instrumental in um, uh, sort of in doing this. So they were considering it, it sort of really in, in sports people. But yes, it used to be female athlete triad, but now we know so much more about it. Hmm. So just to clarify, when you talk about disordered eating, is this someone who isn't aware of how many calories they're burning, so they are not consuming enough calories? Or is it someone that might be on the other end of the spectrum that, you know, has, a, has an eating disorder or is, you know, has, has issues with food in that, in that respect? What are we talking about when it comes to the, you know, calories in or both? I think we're talking about all of it, actually. And I suspect it's a, I suspect it's a little bit of a spectrum. At one end, you will have... Um, very disordered eating, so bulimia, anorexia, and a lot of those people still partake in sport. Um, part of the thing about Red S is that some of people can have significant psychological issues, um, some of them related to sport, some of them related to body image. So they will have what we would term an eating disorder. But we will get a very large number of athletes, recreational athletes and um, elite athletes who will have, as you say, disordered eating, but disordered eating in such that they are actually just not taking in the calories for the amount of energy um, that they are expending. So, yeah, so a little bit of a spectrum. And I think there's an awful lot of um, ignorance in medical professionals, in athletes, in the general population about what are good eating habits, how much people need to eat, the sort of foods they um, need to eat to be able to match their um, energy expenditure. Oh, that good. That, that clarifies that. A word from our sponsors. As chiropractors, we know how important medical imaging can be for diagnosing and treating certain patients. But if you need a scan for yourself or a patient, navigating waiting times, costs, and admin can be daunting. Scan.com are here to help. They are the UK's largest diagnostic imaging platform, making scans simpler, faster, and more affordable. It's a game changer for busy practitioners like us and improves patient choice. Stay tuned as we'll actually be welcoming scan.com onto the pod in the near future. So when we're then looking at kind of, if we call them the warning signs or the symptoms of Red S, what are we looking for as in the early stages, whether we're kind of MSK professionals or athletes ourselves? Are we just looking for, you know, are there certain symptoms that we're looking for to be aware of this? Um, yes. Well, there's, um, yes, and that's a whole long question that we could okay. um, obviously talk for a long time on. There are lots of systems um, which, if people have low energy availability, there are lots of systems that are affected um, affected by this. So if we think of first how we work out energy availability, we work it out from what you take in and then what you use um, on the way out. And we have a number below which um, people start to malfunction. And we don't need to worry too much about the units involved, but we think of the, the, the number 30. That's a number that we don't want to go below. And for good, certainly female functioning, we need to be 45 and above. So anybody that's in this sort of energy availability, possibly deficit, 
is looking between 30 and 45. Um, now, measuring that is difficult. So what is much easier for us is to look at the systems that are affected um, by this. And, you know, sort of those are the things that people come to you and present with. So one of the most obvious um, things is the endocrine system, um, which for people that don't know what endocrine means, it's sort of it's hormones and, um, you know, those sort of things bobbing around the body. Now, Disordered periods is the most objective thing, um, and it's often one of the first things to, um, to go. Now, the problem is that a lot of athletes, particularly sort of female college athletes, um, will sort of think that not having periods if you run enough is normal. So there's a normalization of, of some of these symptoms, um, and that they would never think to report it because they don't know that it's abnormal. They just think it's a normal part um, of training. One of the other things we would look for is whether people's thyroid isn't quite working um, properly. And these are things that people can talk to their GP about with various um, symptoms. Bone health is very, very important. And I'm sure you're going to sort of talk about that um, sort of later. One of the things we notice about bone health is the bones are not as strong. The density of them, i.e. the thickness of them, um, is, is, is not as great. And people start to develop more bony type injuries, which can sometimes lead to fractures. So in runners, you will see fractures in the legs, particularly lower legs. In sports such as rowing, you may see fractures in the ribs. And sometimes these people flag up to us because they've had more than one, we call it a stress fracture, more than one stress fracture. And then that flags up to us that actually we need to really start looking at their um, sort of eating um, habits. Another thing that can happen is people can get very low in iron. So we get these blood um, sort of disorders. So if people become anemic, what they will start to complain of then is a feeling of tiredness or they haven't quite got enough energy to complete an exercise task. Um, they get very short of breath. So that might flag up to a healthcare professional or one of mm. the coaches um, that that's a problem. Growth and development is an, another area which is um, sort of affected by long-term low energy um, availability. And also some of the other systems, so your cardiovascular system, um, your gastrointestinal, which is your gut system, your immunological system. So you will find that people just don't fight off coughs and colds quite as um, readily as maybe you and I would. They will come possibly to the doctor saying, oh, I've repeatedly got tonsillitis. I've repeatedly got a, a cough and a cold. And that should just flag up to us, you know, why have they repeatedly got um, a cough and yes. a cold? And then one of the main things that's actually really important is this is the psychological aspect of it. Um, now, whether this precedes or is as a result of Red S is a, 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 a difficult question. And I suspect um, it is a little bit of both, but certainly rates of anxiety and depression um, are much higher in that population who have red S, who are at risk of red S than in the normal um, population. Yeah. So they're the main things that people will yeah. come and flag up with. So I guess the difficulty is, is because what you've just described is a cluster of symptoms that could present to a numerous amount of different healthcare professionals. You know, you could, you could have had a, you know, shin splints that was a kind of a, you know, a stress fracture kind of undiagnosed for quite a while. You might have seen your GP about some changes to periods and no one's really kind of putting this together. Um, you know, you have a coach that's looking at your you know, lack of energy and being a bit tired, underperforming, and no one's really putting all of these parts together to kind of build this pattern. So I'm guessing, you know, it can be quite hard to get this, you know, 
under control in some instances because until you see someone like yourself or someone who's aware of this, it might be a bit more missed to some degree. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely um, that's absolutely correct. People in elite sport um, have have an advantage over the general population because uh, the sort of national governing bodies will have a doctor that looks after you know certain level of running, certain level of gymnastics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they will be seeing athletes on a much more holistic um, basis, talking about everything. Whereas you're absolutely right, they might present to their GP with all oh, recurrent coughs and colds. Um, might present with, oh, I'm a bit anemic. But yes, having somebody to put all that together um, is mm. difficult. What we need to do is to raise awareness um, of all those, you know, sort of symptoms we just talked about, all yeah. those body systems we just talked about throughout all levels of, of sport, not just on the, you know, sort of doctors, physios, et cetera, nutritionists in elite sport, but GPs, nurses, um, and I think coaches are, are the key to a lot of this. Coaches and trainers are the key to a lot of it because they are the people who will be seeing athletes on a daily, a weekly um, basis and are the ones to be able to pick up, oh, you know, so-and-so mm. is always unwell or so-and-so has lost a lot of weight or yeah. so-and-so can never complete the training I'm giving them. So I yeah. think sort of coaching educational programs are, are, are actually going to be very important. Yeah. So I'd like to, to pull apart a few of those symptoms then, which you kind of described or the, your warning signs, things that might kind of present to GPs and physios and chiros and other people like that is, you know, the main one being the kind of the disordered menstruation, changes in periods. You said that you know, a lot of women will think that's normal to some degree. The, they're training hard, so they haven't had a period in, in a number of years. Is that ever okay? Or is it always uh, a problem that they're training to an extent where they're not having periods? I, I think it's probably not okay. <laughs> I think, yeah. Um, yeah, it is probably not okay. And if somebody, if somebody's periods have reduced, um, they need to go and talk to somebody about it because it most likely is as a result of this low energy availability. Or, of course, we have to, we have to, um, what we have to be very aware of is the fact that people have other conditions as well. So it used to be that. Red S and all the various bits and pieces in it were known as a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning that we could only diagnose this if we'd ruled everything else out. If they'd been to the cardiology, the heart doctor, if they'd been to the reproductive doctor, if they'd been to all the other doctors, and they all said, no, 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 nothing wrong, nothing wrong, nothing wrong, then we would think, okay, well, maybe this person has this, this red S syndrome. Whereas I think that has now changed in that we're beginning to recognize that, as you say, it's a sort of a cluster of um, cluster of symptoms um, that is that is part of this syndrome. So I would say that no, a in somebody that's training and somebody that's exercising quite hard, a reduction in the frequency of periods is one of the early recognizable things. And some, and that should always be flagged up. Um, I think that's really important. And how long um, is, is a problem with amenorrhea in terms of no periods? I think there's different categories. I think the Americans use kind of three months and, and in the UK we talk about six months of no periods and that's a, a, you know, starting to be a problem. Is that the, the timeframes that you, that you would use? I think so. I would personally, I'd probably fall somewhere between the two, if I'm honest. At three months, I'd be thinking, okay, what's going on here? By six months, I'd be thinking, oh, yeah, right, there really is something going on here. So 
I think people should be presenting to a healthcare professional at three months, but it may take that other um, three months to gather the evidence for everything else. So I think they should present at three months. I'm not sure a diagnosis should be made at three months because I think we need time for the other investigations yeah. and to put it together um, the picture, but certainly to be flagged yeah. up at three months, I would say. Yeah. No, that, that's. I think that's really good clarification because, you know, I've had it with patients. We've asked a patient and asked about period function and, you know, menstrual cycles. And they said, oh, I've, you know, going through a, a really heavy batch of training at the moment. So I haven't had a period in a couple of months, you know, and that, you know, and people have normalized it. And it's, you know, within a running club or within a, you know, it becomes the, a very normal thing and almost becomes a bit of a taboo to then ask about it. And I think to make this less of a taboo and to make, you know, normal healthcare professionals start asking about this and, athletes to be aware that this isn't a normal thing to happen and you know there's something that you know needs to be investigated a bit further at this level should be more should be wider known really yeah no i i agree entirely and i think i think it is becoming more widely known certainly in one of the um one of the sports that i work in there's been quite a push um on sort of raising the profile um of red s i think in some other sports probably less um, probably less so. In 2018, I think this was in America, but in 2018, they did a little survey of doctors, coaches, healthcare professionals, da da da, da um, of people's awareness of it. And less than 50% of healthcare professionals had even heard of it. And 37% of doctors hadn't heard of it. So that was 2018, but I still think we've got we've got quite a way to go. And I think what is really important, and certainly in one of the sports in which I work, we've worked quite hard is to start including men in the conversations, because firstly, this happens in men, obviously not the period business in men, but um, the red S yeah. happens in men, um, but also to make um, coaches feel comfortable talking to the girls, talking to the young women um, about periods. And then with that, I think we'll get a much better idea and be able to pick mm. up things um, much earlier. So it's changing, but still got a ways to go. Good. Um, so the next one you mentioned was the bone density issues. And, you know, patients that might have had kind of history of um, bone stress injuries, stress fractures, um, which coincidentally we have a podcast coming up on in a couple of weeks time. Oh, okay. But uh, as, as an aside, um, so when we're looking at kind of a history of that, are there any other warning signs that someone might have some bone density issues outside of a fracture or kind of a stress fracture? Is there any way to tell either themselves or from, by seeing a medical professional? Um, yes. So development of shin splints um, is, is a sort of a stress response rather than a stress fracture. Now, people have different um, sort of different ideas of actually what causes shin splints. And that's, that's a whole other um, conversation. But It's a whole podcast in itself. Yes, that is, that's so, a whole yeah. podcast in itself. <laughs> um, but certainly people who have bone density issues, um, it has been shown that they have sort of a higher um, incidence of shin splints. So if runners are getting shin splints they they need to go and speak to somebody about it something it may not need to be anything other than conversation which will flag up that actually your training load is too great and it may be the training load rather than the sort of change in um sort of bone density um if somebody's got a stress fracture that's usually quite obvious not always but usually quite obvious <laughs> 
Um, and so obviously the, the athlete can flag that up. But sort of things that as healthcare professionals we can do, um, we can look at vitamin D, we can look at calcium because it's actually very important to have those levels high. Um, so a simple blood test, if, if those levels are low, that's a little bit of a red flag that we are not necessarily looking at low bone density, but we're looking at circumstances that could lead to low bone density, i.e. the diet isn't um, quite good enough. And then we can do bone density scans, DEXA scans, um, to, to, to actually put a number um, on the bone density. And then we are in a position as healthcare professionals to say to a particular um, athlete, recreational athlete, et cetera, et cetera, you know, look at this. This is, um, this, this is not your optimal bone density. And we need to have a conversation about food and we need to have a conversation about training load because this is two this is two things, really. It's not all about eating. It's not all about a poor diet. It's also about a in a lot of um, a lot of cases, a very significant training load. Um, and it may be that that's the thing that we have to, to work on as much as the food intake. And I guess, you know, fr from your perspective, if you have a patient with a with a stress fracture or potential for a stress fracture, what are you telling them that the risks are? Are the risks that they can then go into a full fracture? Is the risk that they can have multiple kind of stress 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 fractures? You know, what's the the risk of of these appearing in in bones? Um, well, the risk is that it it can go through yep to a full fracture. So a stress fracture will sort of um, break maybe one side of the cortex, little crack one side of the cortex, which is the outer covering of the bone, um, and that can go through to a full um, fracture. We also, it also flags up to us and the conversation that I will have with patients is that actually we need to change what you are doing. I am not an expert on food, you know, I'm not a nutritionist, um, but what I can help you with is your training and the load you are putting on it. So it has to be quite, from my point of view, quite a bossy conversation. And in fact, I had a lady last week with a stress fracture um, and telling her she has to offload that leg and she has to do this for a certain length of time. And I'm not I'm not asking her opinion on this. I am telling you that this is what you have to do. And then we will work back. Um, we'll work back into it. So that is that is it's not a difficult conversation for us. It's quite an awkward one. Um, mm. But it, it's about treating that fracture and then we'll come back. to once that is healed, we will then come back to looking at what your training what your training load is Good. so it, it's a combination of your bones not quite being um you know thick enough dense enough and a um, excessive training load on it yeah. and we need to address all of it yeah and i guess that's also a really hard a much harder conversation to have sometimes with an elite athlete you have someone that's got you know they're in a 12-month cycle building up to the olympics or um you know whatever it might be the nationals or something compared to your weekend warrior which you know they might have their london marathon in a couple of months but arguably it's a very probably just as important to them but it's not their career defining moment which it potentially could be for an olympic athlete so i imagine that's a very difficult conversation to have that you're gonna to have to you know put put you in a boot or on crutches for a, a you know indefinite period of time until this is healed it is it is a very difficult conversation i think and one of the things which um in elite sport yes but also i think we need to do for a recreational athlete as well is have what we call a multidisciplinary approach in that we're trying to help people with uh, a number of professionals um, coming in. So if we're talking about um, elite athletes, we need to involve the coach, probably a head coach. We need to involve the strength and conditioning coach, um, the, the doctor with the sort of holistic mm. um, 
approach, the physio and nutritionist, I can't remember if I said nutritionist, yeah. with an individualized program for them. And of course, what is most important is that you need to get the athlete to buy into it. And that, um, and I think that's particularly why we need the multidisciplinary team, because otherwise athletes can play one person off against another one. And that, yeah. oh, you know, but Clodagh said that, oh, but, you know, so-and-so said that, and so-and-so said that. So I think that multidisciplinary approach is really important to get the athlete buy-in because that is ultimately what we have to do. And then for the recreational athlete, I still think we need a little bit of a multidisciplinary approach. If I see somebody um, who is a recreational athlete but still has features of this, you know, I am not qualified to, to give nutritional advice. I'm not qualified on the strength and conditioning advice. So I will always, um, you know, sort of seek seek help with that. So we'll, we will have a multidisciplinary yeah. approach, but just a little bit sort of less so than the elite athlete. But I think that's the important thing. And and for the patient to believe in you and for them to believe that you have their back and you and you are yeah. you are with them and you're going to help them even on the down bits as well. Yeah. It's not here's some crutches send you on the way. It's uh, it's that kind of you know we're touching base and doing that wonderful. I'm very glad to hear that. The the last symptoms or the last kind of cluster of symptoms you mentioned were that kind of generally you know low energy, feeling tired, feeling lethargic, and the you know, maybe lots of respiratory tract infections or coughs and colds. Is that just because you don't have that energy to fight it off, and then you don't have the energy to do anything else, so you feel extra tired? Is that kind of how it is at the crux of it? Uh, well, I think it probably is actually. So the immune health will be to all, um, you know, alterations in levels of antibodies and how these work and various inflammatory factors, et cetera, et cetera, all sort of for much cleverer people than me. And um, and you 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 do see in these in um, people with red S of some degree, they really do come to you and say, oh, I'm always unwell. I've always had a cold since Christmas. Um, and yes, it's just that inability to fight that off. So when then they are sort of, they're saying, oh, I feel very tired or this, that, and the other, they're probably slightly post-viral, post-infection for a lot of the time, as well as also um, the sort of the blood type symptoms in that they're probably low in iron. They're probably low in iron stores. They're probably low in the iron that they um, are in the little red blood cells. And we need iron to make hemoglobin, which is what carries the oxygen round to the muscles. So on all those fronts, they're probably um, they're probably failing. Yeah. Um, not personally yeah. failing, but you know their bodies just aren't just aren't working yeah. properly. The, I heard a really good analogy, and you might tell me this is an orphan analogy, but I heard a good one, which was describing these symptoms as a bit like when your iPhone goes onto low battery mode. I don't know if you have an iPhone or yeah. not, but it basically shuts off everything else that's important, and it just focuses on what you're doing right now, and it kind of ignores all the other systems. You know, and iPhones do that. They go into low battery mode, and it doesn't search for email constantly. It doesn't you know, alert you to all this other stuff that's happening because it's got so little energy. It just focuses on this, and I thought that's quite a good analogy for you know, why these other body systems effectively just reduce or shut down in some cases yeah no i think well I, I think i might use that analogy the next time i have a patient with that i think that's a very good analogy because yes because once we get below this sort of number in females this number of 30 um we we cannot um you know we cannot look after our bone health we cannot look after our yeah. immunological health etc we're so focused on just getting through the day-to-day -day activities because we don't have enough energy so yeah. yeah we've gone into low power mode like the iphone yeah no. 
low, low power mode. So are, are some sports or, you know, types of athletes more predisposed to this? You know, is this, you know, athletes with weight categories, you know, if we come on to things like boxing and rowing, or is it just people who think that they need to be lighter to kind of, you know, to, to perform better? You know, often people think, well, if I'm a runner and I'm five kilos lighter, I'm going to run faster when then that isn't necessarily the case always. Right. Yes. Well, all of the above. So again, if we look at that equation, we're talking about energy in versus energy out. So if we think about the energy out, we're looking at, we're looking at people with very high training loads. Um, so they're, they're the endurance sports with, with the endurance training. So we're looking at the rowers, we're looking at cyclists, we're looking at the cross-country um, runners. So they are people with very high training loads. Then um, we also start thinking about the people, as you say, the people that want to lose weight for various reasons. Firstly, because they have to perform in a weight category. Now, probably some of the smallest people you'll see around are the jockeys, the jockeys that race the flat horses, like those that run in the derby and, and this, that and the other. Um, they have to be above a certain weight, but they want to only just be um, above a certain weight. And if you ever uh, sort of go racing and you stand beside a jockey, they, they are tiny. They are tiny, tiny, tiny. Mm. So um, they uh, they do restrict their food intake quite a lot. They'll spend quite a lot of time in the sauna, et cetera, et cetera, to get themselves to that optimum weight, which is not very um, not very high. Of course, other other sports um, with weight categories, the people are always trying to get down maybe to be in the, the lower category because um, if they're at the top of a lower category, obviously they have a little bit of an advantage. Um, sports such as rowing, um, there are different categories, um, but within each category, people don't want to be too heavy because every extra sort of half kilo or so of weight that's not needed um, will slow you down. And then you have the aesthetic categories, um, such as gymnastics and things like that, who actually may not necessarily want to be lighter, but they want to be a certain body um, body confirmation. So yes, they're, they're most definitely um, sort of those sports which are particularly risk yeah. the high training lows versus those that want to be either thinner or um, lighter. Yeah, and I guess if you have that kind of ramp in volume, you know, these it's not abnormal for these rowers and cyclists to be burning eight, ten thousand calories a day without really kind of, you know, even not even excessive load, just the kind of that's their normal daily volume. It's just a huge amount of energy expenditure yeah. and they might not actually think I need to consume that it's, you know, it's hard to consume ten thousand calories in a day. You know, yes. that's a challenge yeah. in itself, isn't it? Yeah. And one of the problems that we do see, and this has been flagged up just I don't know whether um, you sort of read or heard about it recently, um, flagged up in reports on swimming. Um, some of the sort of younger, not younger, they were younger at the time, sort of female um, swimmers have now flagged up that they felt they were under a sort of pressure in their teenage years yeah. by, um, you know, some of the people. Body shape. Body shaming, fat shaming. Yeah. That yeah. goes on in a lot of sports, but I was interested to see yeah. that swimming had been very open about it a couple of weeks ago, which is really good because yeah. then that goes some way to to making that that is not a place where we want to where we want to be. But I suspect that probably ten years ago it was quite common. Yeah, and that's awful to think that there's people out there who are trying to perform at their best, and then that is what's on their mind. 
you know, which is awful yes. to think about that, you know, someone is, you know, swimming in the world championships and they're thinking about what they look like, you know, whether that's male yeah. or female, um, you know, thinking about what they look like, which is obviously not what we, you know, want to be as a society. So that's, a, it's yeah, good that we're exactly. raising awareness of that not being normal. Yeah. Yeah. And then we spoke about that kind of, you know, obviously we've spoken a lot about kind of periods and we're associating this a lot with, with females initially. And now we're kind of raising awareness of, of red S in men as well. Is, is there a, do we know a percentage split in terms of how much more common this is in females, if it is more common in females to men? Um, off the top of my head, no, I don't know figures. If we were, if we were to tot up how many females have it versus how many men have it, um, we would have a far, far, far greater um, incidence in, in females. Now, that might be because females actually are more prone to it than men, or it could be that just it's much easier to spot um, in a female because one of the main um, sort of symptoms is this sort of change in periods, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, no, I don't, I don't have a figure. Yeah, um, good to know that certain, way. It's, it's probably quite hard to tell as well in a lot of these cases. And it's quite hard to tell. And, you know, there is there are differences in, in female culture and male culture. Um, and a lot of men may not come and speak to somebody um, about always being unwell or this, that and the other. You know, I've got man flu all the time, et cetera, et cetera. They don't want to come and talk about that. Whereas I think... Mm. For some females, it's much easier to do so. Um, so it may just be that we're not picking this up in, in men, and it may be much more common than we think. It's a, because it's only a relatively recent thing that it changed from the female athlete triad I, in 2014, I think. This is in terms of doing research on, on various groups of people. Um, we're only at the sort of infancy of, of doing it. Studies take quite a, Decent studies take quite a long time. Um, sort of three, four years if you're going to do a, a proper study on anything. So um, in 10 years' time, we'll have a much um, better idea of, um, you know, of, of how it's going in men. And, of course, because we think it's much more common in female, a lot of the studies are done in females. So this sort of perpetuates the um, information yeah. that we get. Cycle, about yeah. And then I think we're sort of a little bit at the stage now. Well, let's just – we'll apply that to men as well. And, you know, is that right that we should um, yeah. do that? I don't know. Might be, but um, more studies. Yeah. And it's a, bit, it's a bit like the reverse of all the initial kind of ACL studies and, and tendon rehab studies were done on men. And actually they weren't really, we were assuming the same yeah. things were happening in female when actually hormonal cycles have a massive impact on ACL healing and, and tendinopathies and things like that as well. So, you know, it's, we're just yeah. assuming that they're all the same. And actually, you know, these changes can be quite, quite different, you know, surprisingly with, yes. with different yeah. hormone cycles. So um, obviously we have a lot of, you know, this is aimed at patients and for patients listening, we do also have a lot of um, you know, medical professionals and therapists and physios and osteos and chiros, all these people listening to the show. So if we're reaching out to, for those people listening who are in the medical profession, if we have someone who's then appearing with these type of symptoms, they might not have had a period in six, six months or a year. They, they might've had a history of bone stress injuries. What's the best place then for management? Is it best to signpost then for the GP? Is it best to send them to a, a someone like yourself, a sports a sports medicine consultant? Who's best place to kind of you know, you know really be their be their point guard to to manage them? Um, I think probably a sports and exercise medicine consultant who's got an interest in exercise medicine um, has a, has a holistic approach and probably has the um, 
sort of ins to the nutritionist and, and this, that, and the other mm. ability to do the various blood tests and pull it all together. So I would say certainly, yes. I think the GP, first of all, probably should be the um, first port of call. But like I said, there are a lot of doctors who don't deal with this, don't know about it. Um, and so therefore, I think if a, if a if a athlete, patient, whatever, is going to go to the GP and um, sort of say, oh, I'm a bit worried about this, a bit worried about this, um, they probably need to be quite forceful in saying, you know, is this something that um, mm. I should be worried about? And, and just making sure that, or, the, or if they go to a physio or Cairo or, you know, something, it's not necessarily a doctor yeah. thing. But if somebody suspects they have it, I think they need to voice that. I think it's probably what yeah. I'm trying to say. But I think a sports and exercise meds consultant is probably the person that's best placed and has the ability to pull a multidisciplinary team, whoever um, we need together to, to do that. Because the thing is, if you, go to a, if you go to a heart consultant, if you go to a, a gut consultant, they will focus on, on that bit. Yeah. Um, and then they'll say, no, no, your heart's fine. You know, I don't know why yeah. it's a bit slow or something. Or you know, yeah. your, your gut's fine. So I think you need somebody yeah. who's got a broad um, thing. What we have to be very careful yeah. of is that we are not saying, oh, right, this must be red S. You know, it must be red S. And ignoring the fact that actually there really might be something else wrong. That yeah. They do have a heart problem or whatever. So, um, and that's why it used to be what we call this diagnosis of exclusion. We only yeah. diagnose if we'd exclude everything else, um, that it shifted yeah. a bit. But we do have to be always aware that we um, yeah. we shouldn't be ignoring that there might be something else going on. Brilliant. I'd like that. So I guess the, the last question that I have is, effectively, how do we manage this? Is this just a matter of you need to eat more calories? You know, assuming, you know, we need, we don't need psychotherapy or, you know, psychological intervention if someone has an eating disorder and that, you know, is a very much more difficult thing to manage but for someone that is simply not eating enough it, you know is that it do they just need to kind of eat more calories or is it does it go a lot more is it a lot more complicated than that i think it's i think it's more complicated than that yes i think um our management of it so i mean so to go back just prior to your question our management of it is raising awareness um and so that people can present um, to people. So we need educational programs for healthcare professionals, for coaches, for trainers, um, for athletes, for recreational athletes. So I think before, you know, to get the people through the door so that we can say you've got red S and we need to treat it, we, we need um, an educational aspect um, to it. In terms of treatment of it, um, the, gist, the, the gist of it is, yes, you do actually need to eat more to meet your um your your needs of the energy you're expending now that sounds very very simple and it's not it's not simple at all so it's not that we can send somebody away and say right you know tomorrow you're going to eat x thousand calories and you know that's four thousand more than you used to eat um we need to look at what their training load is and therefore that's why we need to involve the strength and conditioning and the trainers and this that and the other or if people don't have that, you know, somebody needs to have that conversation with them. And that may well be you. That might be you as somebody who's treating them as, you know, chiropractor or whatever. And then a nutri and then nutritional support is very important. And it has to be individualized nutritional support. Um, what we often find in sport or in a running club at whatever level is that 
you will have a nutritionist who gives an overall, um, these are the amount of calories you eat, you need so many grams of carbohydrate and protein after you go for a 2K run, da 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 And that does not fit everybody because it doesn't take into account the amount of food they're eating, the time that they're eating the food, the fact that they might be doing six hours of exercise outside of the 2K run that they're doing. Um, so treating it is very difficult. What we would normally do with our multidisciplinary team, quite often we would have to stop that athlete from, we may have to stop them from doing any exercise at all for a short, for a short period of time. And as you say, that's quite difficult then if you've got an elite athlete who is on a training program looking to say this summer's activities, um, you know, a pre-Olympic year activities, Olympic activities, da -de -da -de, or whatever their goals are. Um, so that all has to be um, sort of matched up. We need to look at the various blood tests, make sure that their vitamin D is good, make sure their calcium is good. If they've got an abnormal thyroid, that may well um, need treating. If they're anemic, we may need to give them iron. So we need to look at all the individual sort mm. of little bits um, and treat what we can. Yeah. But actually, I think you're quite right. The gist of it is you need to eat more and you need to eat enough to meet your yeah. training needs. So it's a very simple thing to say, and it's actually a very mm. difficult thing to do. I think that I'm, I'm glad you clarified that because, yeah, as you said, f not all food is food and, you know, kind yeah. of understanding the differences between different types of foods and the timings that you eat and all of those things. And this is why we have expert dietitians and nutritionists who are fully aware of this and then who also understand the needs of your sport specifically and, you know, the calories that you need to train at your highest and, you know, the, the cycle of training that you're on. So this is why that huge multidisciplinary approach, I think, for something like this is, is so beneficial. But it's not easy for everyone, you know, at the Olympic level, we have access yes. to all of this, yeah, but exactly. at the, you know, the, the, the weekend warrior who's had a couple of stress fractures and, you know, they're trying to get back into that, you know, good for age London marathon place. I guess that's where it's, A, can be very expensive, you know, to, to have all these different tests and see someone, see lots of different people, but then to, to get access to that, especially when someone doesn't listen to you can be, can be challenging, I guess. So that raising awareness is so, so vital. And this is why, why we're doing this podcast for, for this yeah. reason. Yeah. No, I think that's, yes, that's exactly what we, uh, what we have to do. And then, of course, one of the big things with it is also sort of the psychology of it. Um, there mm. are certain personalities who may well predispose to um, having uh, sort of red S, um, though the people that are striving for, striving for perfectionism, um, who are super, super competitive. I'm not saying that other people aren't competitive, but competitive to the point of actual slight self-destruction. So there are some personalities yeah. predisposed, and that may not be something that we can alter. We can't alter people's personalities. And then we have the other factors outside of that, um, putting pressure on people. So like we said about sort of coaches, not just coaches, but people fat shaming, body shaming, et cetera, um, peer pressure, in, in, in that all the girls in a certain club think it's normal to have periods. Why would I flag that up um, to, to anybody at all? And the fact that this behaviour then becomes normalised in a, in a group of people. And also they have to make a weight. And if they're a slightly bigger person, they struggle more to make the weight, mm. somebody sort of on, on that border as well. So there's all sorts of sort of external factors as well as internal factors, which will yeah. alter how food and diet and energy is perceived.
And then, and then that awareness then also comes from our side of the fence, which is, you know, the people that aren't used to asking these questions with female or male athletes asking about, you know, food and, and nutrition, which can be a bit of a touchy subject. Asking as male therapists, asking females about periods can also make a lot of people feel a bit more uncomfortable. So having this conversation uh, at our level is, is vital. You know, if you have a, you know, a physio might not have ever had that conversation. As a GP, it's a lot more common that you have these conversations, but a physio might not have had these conversations with patients too often so making this normal effectively and normal yeah. to ask these questions to kind of raise awareness and explain why we're asking this because then that also safety nets the patient for you know have you had any of these issues you know this is why I'm asking these questions in the same way that we ask about a lot of other red flag type questions it should be almost included in those red flag questions you know nor- normal periods and uh, it can obviously raise awareness for lots of other conditions not just this and potentially serious ones yeah no I agree I agree so that's why we need the education educational element but also the educational element for for athletes and in that i mean elite athletes i mean recreational athletes i mean weekend warriors that are you know the people yeah. like you shuffle around on a run a couple of times a week yeah um, me too <laughs> yeah all, um, all of the above we need to raise the profile yeah. of it so people are aware of it and as you say they're not embarrassed to go and mm. talk to particularly if the female to go and talk to a male person about it because that is yeah. often quite difficult for people yeah and for, for girls yeah and we normalize these things as medical professionals that you know these things are normal you know we ask these questions and actually it can be you know, very uncomfortable for someone who's not used to answering these questions so i'm glad that we're yeah. you know having this discussion because it's exactly it you know if we have you know fifteen thousand people listen to this you know that's exactly that's fifteen thousand people that might not have been aware of this or you know yeah understood that this was even an issue before so i really appreciate you kind of you know i you know this is a very whirlwind stopped whistle stop tour is the phrase i'm looking for a very complex wide-ranging topic that we could have spoken on for hours and hours and hours is there anything else that you think that yeah is there anything else that you think that was really important that we that we should cover or be really beneficial for um for anyone listening um yes just there is um when people are i think we touched on it earlier when people are returning um to sport there are several published um, sort of little traffic light um, systems, a risk assessment for sport um, participation, which obviously sort of I can't um, I can't talk through, but there's there's sort of a red traffic light and we have, you know, within that we have sort of people with um, repeated stress fractures, um, sort of low, um, low iron, you know, sort of the symptoms we've yeah. discussed. And then we have people who are feeling completely well, et cetera, et cetera. They're on the green. And the, the most difficult thing is these people are on the amber in the middle. So they're getting better from one thing and they've got a little bit of this and their iron's not quite high enough. And there isn't a huge amount of guidance, um, sort of definitive, objective guidance to, to give to people to say, oh, yes, well, you know, you're, you're moving from orange uh, or amber into green, et cetera. And I think that's for people like you and me. That's where a challenge comes and it becomes a little bit more of an art than a science, we've become very in in medicine. We've become very protocol driven, very box ticking. You can do this when you do this, and you can do this when um, you know you tick this mark or whatever. And I think because our knowledge of Red S is 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 it's good, but you know we haven't worked out a lot of these objective markers. So um, you know, for people mm-hmm. listening, they they may um, have gone to their doctor who sort of said, "Oh, yes, you can restart," or "No, you can restart," and then they think, "Well, my friend was mm-hmm. told." 
something completely different. Um, and they're much the same as me. And I think I think that's just because it's because that middle ground is it, it it's it's more of an art than a science at the moment. So seeing somebody who's experienced in it, I think, is is you know, so a sports and exercise medicine consultant and their team, you know, to include people like you and the SNC and da-da-da. Um, I think it's very important because if those people have seen it several times before, you know, they can draw on their um, their experience and their anecdotal evidence, I mean, yeah. the evidence of what they see, um, to sort of be able to move people forward. So that's another reason why I think mm-hmm. I would go to um, one of those um, docs. Brilliant. Yeah, totally, totally agree with that. Um, thank you so much. Are there any resources that you're aware of um, that, you know, people can read up around this or learn, you know, learn anything else or anything extra about this? Yeah, there's a very good um, website um, and it's called, if they just put Project Red S into Google, um, they'll, they'll get directed to a website, which I think was started by um, uh, Elite Runner, who suffered with this, but didn't realize for quite a long time that this is actually what she had suffered from. Um, and it is a it is a good little, um, well, not little, it's a very good website and it's, it's all done in normal non-medical language so that we can all um, sort of understand it. Um, so that's Project Red S. So that's very, uh, that's very useful. Most of the, um, I'm just sort of thinking most of the other, most of the other sort of resources I've got are quite medical, actually. So probably um, probably not suitable for the general public because they might die of boredom when they read it. Um, <laughs> so I would I would go to the Project Red S because I would say that you oh. know most things you need to know, and then there's little sort of hyperlinks that you can um, you know people can click onto something else, and it gives a very nice and neat non-medical description of what's going on and so people can read it and sort of say oh okay yeah maybe maybe i fall into that category and then signposting and it's got lists of um sort of doctors physios etc who specialize in this that then they can ask for referral to so yeah that's 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 the one place i would say to go to be honest we can link to that in the show notes as well. So for anyone listening, you know, if you if you don't have Google in front of you, click on the link in the show notes, and that will uh, will take you straight there as well. And to those any risk assessment tools which you mentioned, we can uh, link to those as well. So, um, Claude, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I know you're incredibly busy, so you know, thank you so much for for taking the time out of your afternoon and having a chat all about this. As I said, whistle stop tour that is Red S. Pleasure, pleasure. Thank you. Brilliant. And if someone wants to go and see you, where can they where can they find you? Um, you'll find me at the Spire in Cambridge. Spire in Cambridge, fantastic. We'll link to your your kind of profile in the show notes as well for anyone who's uh, would like to come and come and have a chat with you. Then uh, they, they can directly there. Okay. Okay. Brilliant. Again, thank you so much for joining us. And for everyone listening, we will catch you on the next episode. Over and out. Mm-hmm.